Welcome to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil, track-proven, race-ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. On today's show, a great racing buddy and somebody I'm proud to call a good friend, since, of course, he is one of our racing heroes. He uh, is a 1988 kart IndyCar champion and most well-known probably for the amazing victory at the 1985 Indy 500. Please welcome Danny Sullivan. Danny, how are you doing today? Ralph, great. Thank you for the entry and, and couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for being a, a good friend. Well, listen, uh, it's it's always good running into you at the racetrack and a fun bench racing with you about so many different things. And we're going to get to do a little bit of that here today and hopefully maybe for some folks who don't know that much about your past outside of that spin and win at the 85 indy 500 we'll uh, tell them a little bit more about your great racing career which all started on the streets of new york wheeling a cab like nobody's <laughs> business how did you get that gig well yeah, I, I dropped out of school and was bumming around and was in new york and to be honest with you 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 couldn't get a a job in construction because you know they were all union jobs and so forth and the and it was either a cab driver or wait, waiting tables um and the cab driver job came up first and so I just went in and took the test and and got what a hack license a you know kind of a chauffeur's license yeah. to drive a cab and they were somebody was hiring so that's how it started and you know it's typical. I didn't know my way hardly around New York at all. And, uh, you know, you just, but the New Yorkers are such tough clients. They say, I say, which way do you want to go? <laughs> and they'll tell you. <laughs> and so I learned the city, but, um, and then the waiting job came after that. So I, I kind of stopped after a, after a short period of time. But yeah, it, then uh, after they get out of the cab, they tell you where to go again, right? Yeah, well, they, they do that, but it was uh, it was also the time it was the height of the cab robberies at that time. Oh. A friend of mine had been stabbed, and luckily Ooh. just in the hand, and um, and so it was kind of like you know this waiting tables looks a whole lot better. But anyway, it was a great experience. New York's one of my favorite cities. Love being there, and uh, it, I I've looked back on it fondly. Did Did you ever have any famous uh, passengers or crazy story? No, no, not really. I did. I did actually manage to spin the cab in Central Park <laughs> racing somebody. Did you win I that one fair, too? <laughs> a fair in the back, and uh, he was he was pretty good about the whole thing. But uh, some, you know, you get that competitive edge in you. And some guy was trying to go fast, and I thought, well, I know how to get around all these corners. And uh, you know, anyway, had a little half loop and. <laughs> Fair, fair didn't say anything, and we just kept going. And he tipped me. You know, it wasn't huge, but I got a tip. So, uh, anyway, all fun. You all also fun. spent a little time as a lumberjack, and I didn't really know much about that. What were you doing as a lumberjack? Well, when we went, I went with a buddy to New York, and when we got up there, um, his aunt and uncle, and they they didn't like us hanging around their apartment that much, and they said, "Hey, we got you a job up in the Adirondacks Mountains, great right. summer resort area." And we said, fabulous. So we took off and took the train up, and then we had to hitchhike about 50 miles to where we were going. And it was it was a job, you know, cutting timber and um, or mostly trimming trees so they could drop them because they were select cutting sure. trees. And um, 
And, of course, the really fun one in the summer was tarring roofs oh. up there. For But we were about 35 miles from the closest uh, kind of resort area or anything. Yeah. And so we made enough money to get, get out of Dodge, and uh, it was an experience. But, it, you know, it was one of those things that back in the day it was just, you know, you'd go into places and didn't have any money. You could always find a job. They weren't fun, and they weren't <laughs> glamorous. But, you know, we always managed to find a way to go to work and make a few bucks and, and move on. So it was it was a good experience. You didn't really uh, fire up a passion for racing until later compared to what a lot of youngsters do these days. On your 21st birthday, you got an opportunity to go to a driving school, and that's really kind of what kicked it all off. It was uh, my my friend and mentor, a guy named Dr. Frank Faulkner, who is not with us any longer, and Frank had been um the father of a, a, a school chum uh back in Kentucky and he had all he was connected to everybody Bruce McLaren Sterling Moss Jackie Stewart I mean he knew everybody um he friends with John Cooper from the old Cooper days and and Ken Tyrrell and I'd seen all the books and the magazines and at the request of my family he said hey would you look see if you could find Danny. He's in New York, something we don't want to be, you know, kind of chasing him. And he came and we became really close friends. And he said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I want to go racing. And to be honest with you, it was like a midnight over a beer at a <laughs> drugstore on Third Avenue, which doesn't exist anymore. And at first he said he wasn't going to help me. And then he talked to Jackie Stewart and he said, well, send him, send the lad to, to Jim Russell's school and let Jim tell you if the kid's got any talent or all. And that's, that's how the 21st birthday came. Now, there was a caveat. Frank said that if, if they said I had talent, then we could, you know, chase a career. But um, if they didn't and I didn't have any talent, then I was going back to, to school and get a degree and something like that, which was, but I will tell you this, Ralph, the first time I ever sat down in the car and drove it around, and you're going to probably drive home faster than I drove that little Formula <laughs> Ford, um, it was everything that I ever wanted to do in my life. Yeah. It was just, and I, I didn't know that, but it was just, I was completely hooked, addicted, whatever you want, whatever term you want to say. Yeah. And that was the easy part, because Frank was an academian, and I had been a waiter, and you know, money just like now, it takes a lot of money to go racing, and that's but that's how it started. And uh, but, you know, what's and, what's incredible about that too, though, is not just that you know you, you get to go through the school and everything, but all the people that they already knew. I mean, I, I don't have to explain you this know, to you because you you've been around and helped a lot of young guys get their careers going. But the fact that they also have those connections, like Jackie Stewart and Ken Tyrrell and all these people, yep. that's remarkable. Well, it. I mean, listen, Frank taught me so much about it, and then I worked for Ken Tyrrell uh, after the school. I got a job at a uh, Lotus Alpha Romeo dealer. I mean, I was pumping grass and <laughs> washing cars, but at Bell and Colville's, which was a famous Bobby Bell and those guys were. It was a famous Lotus Alpha Romeo dealership there in, in East Horsley, and Tyrrell lived right up the road. So I got a job there, and then on the weekends, I would go with the Tyrrell team as a gopher. And a lot of times that was picking up Jackie at the airport and bringing him or taking him back to the track or whatever, um, you know, for testing, different things. And um, 
I've learned a lot from Jackie, or I should say Sir Jackie now, um, in just the way he handled things. And just, I'll give you one simple example, just his autograph. And he said, well, he said to me, he said, I, I, I changed my autograph a little bit so people could read it. Because he said, I wanted an autograph that when, when people looked at it, they knew it was Jackie Stewart. Mm. And and I signed mine. I altered mine a little bit so mine's readable because so many people, it's like a hen scratch, you know. Yeah. That, and, and you kind of look at it a little later and you go, well, who's that? <laughs> you know, you have no idea. And little things like that. And Jackie was really the first really true marketing uh, race car driver. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he was a guy that really set the standards and, and did all that stuff. So through osmosis, I learned a lot. And then ironically, how I came back in my year in Formula One was with Ken Terrell. Yeah. Um, all those years later, but it, but it, but it was just, it, you're, you're a hundred percent correct. I mean, Frank opened so many doors where I was just, just exposed to a, a different level that a lot of young guys, um, we're not exposed to Gar and, uh, Garvin Brown was a big part of, of getting your career going as well. The heir to the Jack Daniels, uh, family. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, I had, um, I ex exhausted all possibilities in, and, uh, Europe and Frank and I had both, we, you know, had some up and down, um, you know, tenure over there where I'd had a successful season, like in Formula three, then, then things fell apart the next year, couldn't raise sponsorship. And it's all, every young driver out there that will be listening to you knows this. It's all down to the sponsorship dollars. And I'd come back to the States and, and run in Formula Atlantic. And then the, the guy that owned the team, that he, he got in trouble with finances on his business. So that fell apart. And I was working a couple of jobs, one for Skip Barber and, you know, tenant bar and, you know, digging ditches when I had the opportunity and Garvin Brown from Louisville, we got to be friends. And, and at some stage I, I he, uh, he finally said, okay, let's take, let's take a run at this. Let's try to do something in racing. And my career was, was at a dead end. I was, I exhausted everything. I was tired of picking up a phone, calling people, asking for money, um, you know, trying to sell yourself to get something going and, you know, Garvin took over from there, from that side of it. And, you know, it wasn't, none of these deals are easy. Even as close as Garvin and I were, there were some big hiccups along the way. But he stuck it out. And, uh, you know, he he saved my career because he was willing to put the money down for, for me to get into some drives and start a team and, and do some things like that. But And, and but that wasn't message, really for his but, benefit either. I mean, it's not like they were putting Jack Daniels on the side of the car to drive sales. No, there was, absolutely. This was just out of his own personal savings and, and, and uh, what he, what he was worth. And he liked it. He liked being around the racing. He, he had loved cars. I mean, he had, you know, he had, when I met him, he had this car and that car and a uh, 427 Cobra and he had this and that. And, mm. and, but he had never been exposed to it. And actually, Mario and Dreddy and, and, um, Al Unser, we were out at a Can Am race at Riverside and they, we had run into him at the bar at the hotel and they, Mario, uh, give him credit. He said, Hey, you know, you ought to help this guy. 
you know, he, he's he's got a talent, and you ought to help him. And that, you know, when when you're saying it, when you're trying to sell yourself, everybody says they got a talent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And and we all believe we do. Or you wouldn't you if you didn't have confidence, you you wouldn't be going anywhere. But the problem is when somebody like a Mario Andretti or now an Unser says to to you, "Hey, this kid's good. You know, give him a shot." That kind of helps to seal the deal. And we started after that. And, uh, you know, funny story, he put me on a retainer. It was the first time I'd ever really earned any money. And, and we look back at it now and laugh, but he put me on twenty five grand a year. Okay. okay. And, uh, you know, some travel expenses. And, I, I mean, I thought I'd hit the mother load, man. Yeah. It was just, yeah. you know. But, but when you didn't have anything, that was a lot of money. Sure. And uh, and it's still a lot of money, but um, but it was anyway. But Garvin, you know, he he saved the day. We're going to be right back with more with Danny Sullivan here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil, track proven, race ready. Find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. We will be celebrating SpeedSport's 85th anniversary this year. Incredible how time flies by. To help commemorate the occasion, we've unveiled the Vault Collection of merchandise. A really cool variety of t-shirts, hats, posters, and a lot more. It's all available right now in the store at SpeedSport.com. Shop for yourself or get a gift or two for your racing buddies. The Vault Collection of merchandise. Available now in the store at SpeedSport.com. Well, it is the 85th anniversary of Speed Sport as we welcome you back to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Here's a look at the 85th anniversary issue of Speed Sport. You can start your subscription to Speed Sport today by going to speedsport.com. And Danny, I know uh, Speed Sport's played a big part of your racing career, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was it was something that we all look forward to reading. Um, back at the day, Chris Economaki, everybody, I mean, you know, it was, it was the Bible. And, uh, and still to this day, we look forward to what you're, you know, turning out. It's, uh, and I'm, we're, the, the racing public is so happy that you in particular, but you, you know, stepped up and, and saved the name and, and saved the brand. Well, I greatly appreciate the support. Uh, speaking of support, Benetton was a big part of why you got to go Formula One racing. They were looking for an American driver uh, for their United Colors of Benetton program, and that's how they used to market the, the brand back then. They want, they liked that wide variety, that diversity, and they were looking for an American, and you got picked for that. Well, uh, yes, I was, uh, you know, I got picked for it, but it was interesting because Ken Carroll who had a great eye for talent, and I'm not saying that as a slap on the back for me, but but even though they wanted an American, Ken did a test at Paul Ricard, and there were 10 drivers, and I don't remember everybody that was in it, but Stefan Johansson was in the test, and 
Beppe Gabbiani and and uh, a, a number of other Italians were were there that were all had a big name in Formula Three and Formula Two, and I'd done well in the Can Am, but I hadn't been in the European scene for a number of years, and I got invited to the test. And I'll tell you a funny story because I can say it now too. Because Ken puts down right before we got there, he puts down a contract that we all had to sign that if we got selected, and don't laugh, but my first year, um, I was going to get paid ten thousand dollars. Okay, true, wow. ten thousand dollars, and I had to cover for my expenses for the races. Ten grand for Formula, Formula One. Hey, the third year was worth twenty five grand. That was <laughs> wow. it, and I had to cover my and I had to cover my own expenses. Wow. So Garvin walks in. And he goes, "What are you doing?" I was taking my overalls off. I said, "Well, Garvin, I can't, I can't sign this. I can't afford to, to go to the races there. I mean, you know what Formula One's like? They're all over the world." Yeah. And Garvin, this isn't a big confidence booster. He says, "Don't worry. If you get the drive, I'll take care of you and take care of the expenses and all that." You know. So anyway, I go out. I was tenth of the ten drivers to go, and I was getting in the car and I'm getting fitted in and everything and. And uh, Roger Hill, who was the quiet crew chief for Jackie Stewart, won all the championships and everything. And I'm sitting there, can you change this, change that? And he just reaches in and grabs my hand. He says, Danny, just drive the car. And I go, got it, Roger. But I had been watching how all the other drivers had done it. And I thought, well, I want to look professional enough. That's what they were doing. Anyway, and I went out, and um, every lap I did was quicker than everybody else that had done it previous uh, to that point. Well, I was the last one. So, and Ken, typical Ken, he doesn't say anything. He just says, I need you to be in Brazil for the testing on such and such a date. And it's kind of like, okay, does that mean I got the drive or not? But I was just the next step. And I was the only one that went other than Michaeli Alvaretto. But that's how it, but that's how it started. And uh, and it was from there, but but Benetton had asked for an American, but if I had not been the fastest or probably the right at the top with yeah. one, two, or three right there, Ken wouldn't have taken me. He yeah. would have just said to he would have just said to Benetton, he's not good enough. He's yeah. just Ken would have, but but it it was great. And then that was also when I met Luciano. But after the Long Beach race. Um, Long Beach um, Grand Prix, he asked to meet me on the corner in Westwood, you know, where UCLA is. Sure. And I met him there by all these newspaper stands, but I, my Italian was about like his English. We could get by, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't pretty. And so I brought a translator with me, a friend of mine, and and uh, and so he translated and he says, look, I see... Tyrrell's name in the paper, and I see Danny's name in the paper, but I don't see Benetton's name in the paper. What do we have to do to get Benetton recognized here in the States? And without asking me, the guy, uh, Claude, says, you have, to, um, you have to have a PR agent for Danny. And, and so he, he got me a guy, Alan Nirob, um, uh, you know, so that's how it, that's how it started. I mean, that's how it, that's how it all uh, came about with the PR and the marketing side, um, you know, and there, there was also one other lesson here for, for young guys listening or whatever is racing is, yeah, you're out there driving the car, but you cannot do this without the support of people like 
Kim Tyrrell and, and Jackie Stewart and Frank Faulkner and Garvin Brown and, you know, all the other ingredients that go with making a, a successful driver. Yeah, you know, a good PR they all, guy. They all have their place. Yeah. Well, that, that led to uh, fifth at Monaco and a second in the race of champions behind K.K. Rosberg, who was world champion. Um, I mean, you had – you had the speed. You had some success brewing there. What went wrong in Formula One? Um, basically, um, I, I was I was uh, pleased with the thing. Ken was pleased with it. You know, look, you always make some mistakes and stuff like that. Um, but luckily, I hadn't made too many mistakes on the track or anything like that. But what happened was Benetton realized that it was the start of the turbocharged era. There were some turbo cars running and so forth, and, and they said, look, if we're going to be in this, you have to have a turbocharged car. And, um, you know, there was a uh, – Brian Hart had built a turbocharged engine, and Tolman had it, and I tried to talk Ken into, um, into you know, uh, you know, joining forces with, with – which was Tolman at the time. I said, joining forces with Tolman and, and saying, put in a little bit of money, but can believe that Ford was going to come back in and come to the rescue, which they, of course, never did. Yeah. And and so Benetton went away, and um, they they joined Tolman and eventually bought it. That's what became the the, uh, the that's what became the Benetton team and car um when they bought that from him but but i lost the drive and ken told me in february i may have to take a driver that you know bring sponsorship along and and that was a really tough time for me because i wanted to my whole background not entirely but most of my background had been racing in europe and my with the goal of going to formula one and having gotten there i didn't want to leave it um but you know, that was the situation, and so we had had an offer from Doug Shearson, and Frank Faulkner and I sat up for about two or three nights. He was, he was, um, he was a professor and had tenure at Berkeley, and I went up there and, and stayed with him up at Berkeley in California, and uh, we kept calling back and forth to Ken Tyrrell and this and that, trying to decide, and ultimately, it was like, you know, Ken wasn't going to be able to tell us until, like, February. Yeah. And the thing is, if you all of a sudden are out of work in February, you're out of work for the season, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody's mm-hmm. going to pick you up. Um, and so um, I had I took the Doug Shearson uh, offer with Domino's Pizza and turned out to be, you know, a good call and the right decision. But but I didn't want to leave Formula One. And uh, then when I tried to get back into Formula One after I won Indy, um you know, because there was a lot of interest from that, and you know, just the results I'd had with Shearson, they at that time they just felt I was too old. You know, the the yeah. youth trend was starting, and I was 35 years old, so it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like they were wrong, but it was just <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. You never feel that way, you know what right. I'm saying? You feel right. like I'm plenty competitive. But anyway, um, but that's why the the whole Tyrrell Benetton thing went away. Well, the Shearson ride brings you back to IndyCar racing and an incredibly successful career here, which ultimately led to you joining Roger Penske, and that's where the championship and the, and the Indy 500 victory comes. But at the time, 
Penske wasn't necessarily as dominant in Indy cars uh, as he, the team would become when you joined them. No, it wasn't, and it was, and, and a lot of people thought it was a bit of a risk, but but Roger had such a good record. Now, not as impressive as his record is now at Indy, but he had an impressive record at um, at the five hundred, and you know, um, I had. I was, Doug Shearson and I, by the way, and his family, we were all really good friends. And Dennis Swan, who was my crew chief, mm-hmm. all I loved working there. But but there were some issues and just a, a couple sticking points in the contract. Not anything insurmountable, but just stuff. And, it, and I hadn't had a contract signed. And uh, Roger contacted Frank Faulkner and, and the doctor that got my mentor. And he says, does Danny have a contract for next year? And Frank says, you know, I don't know. Let me find out. And he reported back no, and so I got a call from Roger. And I didn't have a contract. There was one pending, but I had not signed anything. And um, and Roger called, and, you know, Roger's, a, as we all know, he's a hell of a salesman. And, uh, and I just looked at it, and I thought, um, you know, look, I'm not that smart. You're just sitting there going, well, you know, sponsorship-wise, Domino Pizza seemed strong. They seemed like they were going to stay committed. We had a great team. Doug had put together a good group of people. But there was just this feeling of of the Penske, you know, power or just the, the team, you know, that the that Roger's not a guy that's going to stay down for very long. And and you just think, well, and so anyway, that was it. And, my, and it uh, – you know, my first two races with with Roger was one was Long Beach, and I was leading coming out of the hairpin and ran out of fuel. Yep. And still got out and finished third. And the second race I did for him was the Indy 500, and won it. When Roger Penske is trying to convince you to drive for him, how does he do it? What does he say? Put put me in that meeting or that phone call. Well, there's nothing that that. Um, there's nothing that's he's not there's no bragging about anything i mean he the, the record speaks for himself but he he brings up the record and he he's got that confidence about him but the one thing that was true to this day um roger was a hell of a sports car racer in his day yeah, he okay was. at one time one of the best okay in sports cars and you see that competitiveness in him that's almost stronger than the competitiveness in yourself, okay? And he wants to win as bad, and that's true to this day. He wants to win as bad, if not worse, than, than you do, okay? And that's why he wanted to drive with a guy like Roger. Roger is also a guy, because he was a racer, he understands that there's a... Um, there's some issues um, that, you know, if there's an issue, he's going to do something about it. And it's not always going to blame the driver, okay? Um, um, so it's, it's just that, you know, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the combination of Danny Sullivan and Roger Penske led to one of the most famous victories in the history of the Indy 500. And we'll talk about the spin and win when we come back on Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. 
one of the main reasons for poor vehicle performance is a dirty fuel system. It can cause decreased fuel economy and actually do harm to your engine over time. By adding Lucas Fuel Treatment to your vehicle, it cleans and lubricates the entire fuel system, pump, carburetors, fuel injectors, and valves as you drive. It also improves your vehicle's performance. It's a non-solvent product designed to protect both gasoline and diesel engines. Lucas Fuel Treatment. It works. We might be a tick over 80 years old, but we have no thoughts on slowing down, and who said reinventing yourself isn't fun? The all-new Speedsport.com is here. New layout, new images, new video, and all the late-breaking news you expect from America's Motorsports Authority. We know you love sprints, midgets, late models, and everything else that gets dirty. Plus, we've got all your pavement series covered, too. The all-new Speedsport.com. You know, for guys who really love racing. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil is track-proven, race-ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. And when you do, you can check out products like their heavy-duty oil stabilizer right here. A lot of great stuff. We appreciate our friends at Lucas Oil supporting our show here. Danny, the 1985 Spin and Win at Indy. It, it uh, comes up every month of May when we head back to uh, Indianapolis and, and get ready for the next running of the legendary race. Uh, I'm sure you've been asked about it a gazillion times and will be a gazillion <laughs> more. But uh, one more time, for those that maybe have never heard it, what was it like? What happened in those moments? Put me in the car. Well, you know, we had stopped a little bit early. It qualified eighth. We stopped a little bit early, out of sync, um, kind of with the field. And just set the stage a little bit. Remember, this was the last non-live broadcast of the Indy 500, okay, in 85. And they didn't have all the telemetry. They didn't have all the TV monitors and everything like that. So um, guys like Derek Walker, who was the guy calling um, my race, for he was the team manager at Penske, he, he was behind the pit box because the the people that were up doing the timing and scoring, they were up on the pit box, you know, to see us go by and so forth like that. But his kind of control room was there. And I, I, because I was behind Mario and caught Mario, the turbulence was bad enough that I couldn't see the pit board very well or read the pylon. And I said, how many laps left? Because, you know, when you're out there, you kind of lose um, track of time, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how many, you know, how many hours into the race it was or anything like that. You just kind of lose. And I thought they said like 180 or something. They said like 120. And I couldn't hear it very well because I'm in that turbulence. In fact, it was a helmet that I got from Bell that was a little bit more aerodynamic shape. It was the only time I ever wore that helmet. Um, and, um, so anyway, I thought, well, that's Mario, you know, I need to get by him pretty quick here because he's, you know, Mario's a tough competitor and tough to pass at the best of times. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And so, um, so, and I was faster than him through three and four. We were about equal on one and two. And so, you know, leading up to it, I get a runoff of him off of four and, you know, he'd move down the inside and we'd kind of go back up and then, and then uh, one time I got even a better run off of him, so I got alongside of him going into turn one, 
And at the time, remember, the apron was right over the white line. Right. So that was where the warm-up plane was. Yep. And Mario just turned and came down like he was going to take his line on the corner. And I just kind of went with him and went down almost to the grass. And when I came back up on the track, it's got a little bit of a change in angle. It's got a little bit of a, you know, all the white lines have been painted every night. And, you know, so it's just a little bit. You're running no downforce. And you got a little, that's when those bias plies. So we had stagger, about 30, 32,000 stagger on the right side. And it just, and your springs are typically a little stronger on that side. And, um, and it just tripped the car a little bit, and I tried to turn into it to correct it, and and it started to bite. Like, it, and if it had bit, it would oh. just turn right. I'd gone yeah. smack right up into the wall, and we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But the, yeah. but so I just turned it back, and because we were quite far around the corner, I was going a little bit more straight, and so I spun really coming off of one into the short shoot. And all of a sudden it spins around and I go, oh, blah, blah, da, da, and just put my foot on the brake. And I thought I'd just gotten the lead of the Indianapolis 500. Now I'm going to hit the wall. And the smoke clears and I'm facing the turn two suites. So I take my foot off the brake and the engine's dead. So in those days it was a five-speed uh, manual gearbox, three-speed. Three speed up gears to get out of the pits and then two top gears that were only about 200 250 rpm difference one if you were saving fuel and one if you were racing somebody and um and if you watch the tape you'll see when i go into three the car does another wiggle and that's when i you know put it in gear and jump started it and got it going again almost lost it again and i radioed to derek walker and i said derek derek the yellow's for me the yellow's for me Everything's okay. Now, remember, that's why I said he, he couldn't see it. Yeah. He didn't see anything. He wasn't watching anything. And so he's out there trying to w- work on the strategy. But the time that it took in my brain is how I just described it. That's how long it took. But the whole thing probably lasted for one and a half or two seconds, maybe. Yeah. Maybe maybe a little bit longer, but that's all. And uh, my tires weren't that flat spotted, so if they hadn't put a yellow out, I could have kept going. I wouldn't have been as racy, but I could have kept going. And we stopped, and I did the same thing to Mario, but when we did it the second time, I kind (laughs) of didn't relinquish my position quite as much, moved him up a little bit on the wall, still came down, but not, not quite as far, and went on to pass him in the same spot but a lot of people say well why there why not in the three and it was just that i was a little bit quicker off of three and four than i was off of one and two we were more equal off of one and two i'm sure you and mario have talked about it um what what did he say went through his mind as you're spinning there in front of him he thought he had me thought uh i mean he was worried because he you know you, you need him to get out of the way and i'm glad it was somebody of mario's caliber that was behind me because he, he, he dodged it and didn't make a mistake and didn't throw himself into the fence or anything like that. And maybe take us both out or anything like that. And, uh, but Mario has been a long time close friend, but he didn't speak to me for about a year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, cause for him, it was the one I should have hit the fence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It should have been his second win because we were, we were, we were, much faster than the rest of the field 
Okay, yeah. I mean there was nobody in the in the race that was a threat to us. So if I was out of the way, I mean Mario would have just stroked it for the yeah. and should have won the second, you know, second five hundred. But um, wasn't meant to be. Wasn't no. meant to be. It no. was just one of those days. And the funny, the last little thing, <clears throat> sitting here today, I still do not know which gear I picked to start the car. Really. I, I, well, I was worried if I went too low, it would snap it. And if I went too high, it might do the same thing. I think I took fourth gear, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm Interesting. not 100 I, You know, I was so kind of, you know, you're, it's not, I wasn't rattled. Uh, you know, I realized that I had dodged a bullet here, you know, but but you're trying to gather yourself back up, get back in the race, get back in you know, report to Derek if he wants you to come in, make the pit stop, make it clean, don't make another mistake, you know, type of thing and, and get back in the race. We're still we're still in the game. Let's go. Interesting. Yeah. You ended up completing the uh career triple crown in IndyCar racing, a uh, couple of victories at Pocono and Michigan and of course the Indy five hundred. Um but you had success on road courses as well, but the ovals really seemed to suit you. Uh, did you think you were a better oval racer than uh, on the big speedways and maybe on the road courses or just played that way? No, no I, I really don't. I, road racing, because of my background in Europe and starting in that type of a racing, I, was always where I felt uh, more comfortable. Um, when you're on a team with Rick Mears, and he was probably – and arguably maybe one of the best ever on the ovals. Yeah. I mean, Rick was fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, and Al Sr. was with us almost every year that I did. I, I think he was with us almost every year until Emerson joined the team. And then Emerson was a hell of a good oval racer. So you never felt like, um, you know, really great on the ovals. And But, I, I mean, I, yes, I won them. But I think the ovals is one where you – to really be quick, you've really got to get the balance in the car right. And more so, I always felt that I could I could hustle a car that wasn't quite as good on a on a road course more than I could do that on an oval. Um, yeah. I think the ovals were if the car wasn't good or if it had too much push or too much was too loose or anything like that, it was really hard to um, overcome that. If yeah. that makes sense, but. Um, but I was, I, w- I think I was more comfortable on the, on the, um, uh, you know, just on the, on the road courses, and the ovals. I mean, I won. You know, the funny part is I won uh, Pocono twice, and and part of that was how I got to drive with Penske because I beat Rick Mears in in '84, uh, um, and we had a hell of a battle. I mean, only beating by a tenth or two, um, basically on the last corner. I mean, I was leading, but we still came on a car and made you know my my pick to go high was better than his pick to go low um could have been the other way around but i mean i beat him there you know fair and square and i think that said to roger um hey this guy's you know he can he can do it on the ovals as well but but pocono um it, it's it's a lot more of a road course type of a oval than yep. an oval. Yeah. Um, just the way the corners are kind of the three different corners are set up. Um, but it's it wasn't safe then, and I think we're we're seeing the continuation of that now for the yeah. for the speeds they're going that they're going at. Just you know, we used to have the walls were dirt back. Uh, they were boilerplate with dirt yeah, behind. Right. Right. 
right. you know and uh you know it just you know and it's a pity because it's it's um it's an exciting track but you know we've had a couple big ones up there in the indy cars and i think that's you know uh, that was probably a smart move um yeah. on indy car yeah so that 85 winning uh indy 500 car too one of the most beautiful cars of that era that red and white miller car was just stunning um that all led to you having a lot more business opportunities away from the racetrack too that that spin and win day at indy led to things like you doing miami vice absolutely um the other 500s are important um and i'm happy to have won the you know the triple crown and all all that but nothing compares to the indy 500 it's just uh, the crown jewel. And I'll tell you, to summarize that, I was after I'd won it, I was up as a guest for the Detroit Grand Prix. Um, I think it was after we'd gone to Milwaukee, and then it was after Milwaukee. And I was up there just to visit with some of the Formula One people, and I saw Alan Prost, you know, four-time yep. world champion. And, I, and he said to me, he says, hey, Danny, he says, I'll trade you some of my Grand Prix wins for that Indy 500 win. Really? You know, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's why Alonzo's coming. That's why, sure. that's why PK came, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a Indy 500 is one of the crown jewels, you know, obviously Lamar's is another big one and so forth, but, but the Indy 500, you know, really stands out as one of the, the, the special um, races. And, uh, you know, I, I still to this day, people, I get introduced and, and, you know, somebody say, Wow, you won the Indy 500? Yeah. And it was like, yeah. They don't say, wow, you won the Pocono 500 twice or the Michigan 500. <laughs> they said, you won the Indy 500. And I'm not knocking those races because sure. they're, they're fantastic in their own, in their own right. I'm looking at, at two of the Pocono trophies and the Michigan trophy right now as we speak. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'm honored to have won them, um, against great field. Uh, but, but they're, they're not the Indy 500. And I think there's two things, Ralph, that I'd say too. One of the things that made this happen and made it for my career was it wasn't just me and it wasn't just the Indy 500. Well, it was never just me. I didn't mean it that way, but it's not just me or the Indy 500. It was because of the field in those days. Yeah in IndyCar racing. And you think back about, you know, Mario, Michael, the Unsers, Rick Mears, Dyke, Ray Hall, um, the list, and I'm, I know I'm leaving people out, the list just goes on and on and on. The yeah. depth in IndyCar at that time, and it was really competitive, as it is today. But, I mean, you'd go out there, and, and the field would be, first 22 cars would be covered by a second. Yeah, you still you had know? some guy named Foyt back then, too. Foyt, yeah, Foyt was still in, in yeah. you know, he was still to be reckoned with, certainly certainly on the ovals. Absolutely. And I learned more. I've, I followed Foyt around in a practice at Milwaukee one time when I first got there, and I go, oh, that's how you do it. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, because Foyt was, I mean, at Milwaukee, he was one of the kings, and, and you followed him around, and you went, wow, okay, I get that, okay. Yeah. And and there was so much help from a lot of those guys, but it's as much of who we raced against as as you know our accomplishments. 
because we were beat, you know. And I've got a cover sitting right here when I was on Sports Illustrated's cover after the the thrill thriller at Indy. And the guy behind me is Mario Andretti, and the guy behind him is Emerson Fittipaldi. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay, you know, and and that that that's a big factor. That's what I'm getting at. Sure was. Just before we go to our final break here, tell me one story from from shooting Miami Vice. Did you get to drive the Ferrari? <laughs> well, I don't want to. Uh, the show's over now, so I don't want to pour <laughs> cold water on it. But that Ferrari was a Corvette. <laughs> The and Daytona they, they is the had, one you're talking about. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they put a Daytona body on it, and um, it, here's the thing. I was not allowed to drive anything. I was not allowed to drive to the set because of the SAG rules. I was I was oh. chauffeured around for everything and was not allowed to drive anything. That's great. <laughs> That's great. We're going to be right back for more with Danny Sullivan on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Complete Engine Treatment is a multifunctional cleaner plus lubricant from the labs at Lucas Oil Products. It's designed for use in both engine oil and fuel systems. It also cleans and lubricates the entire gas or diesel fuel system from the tank to injectors. It contains special Lucas additives that cause the fuel to burn thoroughly and helps increase your miles per gallon. Expect longer engine life, longer oil life, cleaner exhaust, and less fuel consumption. Lucas Oil Complete Engine Treatment. It works. Race fans, it's Ralph Shaheen, and like you, I have a huge passion for racing. With the most in-depth features on racers, series, and events, no one covers racing better than America's original motorsports publication, Speedsport. Get your subscription to Speedsport Magazine today at Speedsport.com. And we are back with our good buddy Danny Sullivan here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil is track proven, race ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. Danny, you're, you're not racing anymore, but you're still very active in Formula One as one of the stewards. What, what do you do with that job? Well, it's um, – you're – Let's go back. They they've always had stewards there, but but uh, the late Charlie Whiting realized that they wanted somebody that was an ex Formula One driver, and so they started a program. It's I guess it's about probably fourteen years in right now, and I've done it for about twelve years. And you you know you're you sit in the room with the with the chief steward, the second steward, yourself, and then a local steward. Uh, from the local uh, automobile club, and you've got all this technology from everything from every in-car camera, cameras on the track, throttle traces, brake traces, everything. And when there's an incident that's called to you, you don't instigate anything. Um, you know, oftentimes we know we're going to get a call, but but uh, you, you then sit there and judge um, – about the incident, what the infraction was, if there was a rule broken, um, and if so, and you agree that there is one, and the majority says yes, 
than what the penalties are. The penalties are sort of already laid out. In other words, there's if it's this severity, it's X. If it's this, it's Y. Um, so it's not like just you know arbitrarily saying, well, let's give them this, let's give them that. It's kind of already um, you know programmed in. Um, and in a lot of the cases, we we have, which is what happened in Austria with the Verstappen and Leclerc. The reason they waited so long is in the rules we are required to have the driver in question come in and speak to us and give us uh-huh. their their opinion. And so that's why it took them so long. They couldn't get the drivers come in because they were on, um, you know, we're we're doing um, you know interviews and all yeah, that. Sure. So. Um, so, you know, it's it's just, um, so we're, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, we're a little bit of the judge and the jury, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and so we're supposed to d- decide some of the rulings are appealable, some are not. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot tougher job because what I really r- realized was as a driver, how many of the real rules do you really understand, okay, yeah. that you know are in place? And you you don't. And, uh, you know, I've learned so much from sitting on that side of the table. But it is a fairly thankless job because yeah. um, you're a little bit like a p- politician. In the best-case scenario, 51% of the people agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But that's a, but that's a best-case scenario. But the one thing about it is it's... it's um, um, it, the one thing and I've done it 12 years, the one thing that I've found out about it is there, there is no bias. Nobody's thinking about anybody with the points, anything like that. We just yeah. judge the incident that's up in front of us, right or wrong. Were they, was there circumstances that, that, that allowed them that they should be able to do that or could have done it or whatever. And if not, then we, we make a ruling and, and go from there. You get to see Formula One up close more than most Americans. Are you okay with where Formula One is at, or do you do you see changes that you'd like to see made? Well, I mean, listen, we're we're obviously big fans of the Haas team because it's an American team, yep. um, and they've you know I think anybody who goes into Formula One the the ladder to climb up to get competitive in the top is really tough. Um, I like the format that Gene Haas has done and picked, um, you know, about being able to buy some of the technology from, from, you know, Ferrari and, and so forth. Um, I think that's a good route because it's so, so expensive for teams to build everything. And the small teams have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of employees. The big teams have, you know, over a thousand. Um, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more parity in terms of uh, the way IndyCar is, because I just think great racing is still great racing, and it makes it more, uh, you know, fan-friendly um, and better for the fans. Um, but they, you know, a lot of the rules don't allow some of that stuff to happen, and they want to be a technology leader, which I think they, they, they can be. But I'd like to see... Um, just you know, the cost come down and and make it so maybe some other teams can get into the sport. Um, and I'm not trying to. I, I wouldn't want to dumb down the top teams. I just think you're trying to find a way to raise the lower teams up. And if you look at Formula One right now, except for maybe the top three teams, the the parity in the middle of the pack is pretty 
pretty intense. Yeah. It's very intense. And so they've got it there. It's just a way to try to move them up. And I think most of that has to do with money. Yeah. And, and, and I think Liberty is doing a really good job as a steward of the, of the sport. Um, and I think they're trying to find the correct solution. Uh, but like all big sports, it's very, very political. Yeah. And uh, and I think that makes it uh, that makes it doubly tough on everybody because there's so many factors involved, and when you have that much money at stake, believe me, it's very very competitive. You were a big part of the Red Bull driver search, which brought us uh, Scott Speed, an American in Formula One. How close are we to another one? I, you know, I, I think that's tough because Red Bull did something that that needs to happen. And that was an avenue for um, for for young American drivers to get to Europe and and have a shot at going up through the ladder system. Um, and you know um, that's gone at the moment. And I don't know how we can get that back because Red Bull was really unique in that in that capacity that they were willing to spend money. You know, Scott started in Formula Renault. Okay, yeah. and and he had some medical issues when he was over there, um, and that were that he he was born with, and just but had to be dealt with. And Red Bull spent a lot of money to do that and to help help him fix that. And uh, you know, Scott was a or is a hell of a talent. I mean, yeah. he's got, but it it's it's and he adapted to the lifestyle pretty well. But it's a, adapting to all the mental side of things as well um, that go with it. And um, I think that's the biggest thing holding back Americans is getting them to be able to go over there, have the money to do it, live the life, get um, integrated into the lifestyle and the, and the junior formulas and all the other formulas that go, go up. I, you know, it was, I don't want to say it was easier for me, but I started there. Right, and so, and so my background was there. So I started with with all that, um, and that's how I got with how I presented the whole driver search program to Dietrich Matzesheets was because of uh, Phil Giebler and Patrick Long, particularly Patrick Long was yeah. pushing, "Hey, help us, help us, help us." And I had tried some American companies, and I went to I saw an article on Dietrich in the Financial Times, and I was living over there, so I got a hold of him, and we talked, and I sent him a you know, one pager and they asked me to come see him. And I went in there and it was typical uh, Red Bull. I wore a suit. Everybody else was in jeans and <laughs> shirt. And, um, and they said, okay, we've got a deal and shook hands on it. And that's how it started. And they were true. They, you know, but then when they couldn't have, um, they were trying to get Ford involved, you know, on the formula one side and Ford, did, Ford did not want to be involved. Um, then they didn't really need the driver search program after that because they they were trying to do a big thing on Americans, and they'd still like to have an American. But one of the other big issues is we've got a let's take Colton Herta sure. for an example. Yeah, Colton's Colton has done his some time in Europe. He loves it over there. He adapted himself very well there. He's the right age, but he doesn't have enough points in the FIA system to to get a super license oh. and and i've lobbied over wait a minute how can you have a guy that's 
been on pole position three times, won an Indy car race, yeah. driving a you know big horsepower car, fast, similar to sort of similar, to, as 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 much if not more so than a Formula Two car at the Formula One, okay, and everything. Yeah. But you can get more points doing a FIA, you know, Formula Renault, Renault series than you can uh, doing an IndyCar series, and that for me just doesn't make make sense. It should be based a little bit more on what they're accomplishing, and you know, yeah. and what they've done, and do they qualify for the thing? But unfortunately, right now the system says that, and. Uh, and Red Bull, for an example, has a lot of interest in somebody like Colton, as does McLaren. But we can't get him a super license. That's crazy. So and that's you know. So I think we've 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 got the kids that want to go there. Yeah. And we've proven we've got the kids that have the talent. Okay. Um, but if you can't get them in a proper seat, um, and you know you had Connor Daly over there, and you had. Rossi over there, and they were in not very good cars. That does nobody any good. Right. Okay. And, and I'm not saying that they should be hired by Mercedes or Ferrari, but I'd like to see them in a mid-pack team where they can show their stuff and have an opportunity to maybe get into one of those teams if they if they you know yeah. develop and show that they're capable of. But it's yeah. a it's it's a battle. Yeah, show that they belong. Uh, last question: Your thoughts on IndyCar and where it is today? Well, I think Mark Miles and his team have done a tremendous job. It's very competitive. Um, as IndyCar has been all, uh, most of the time, the the cars and equipment are about as equal as you can get, and I think that that's tremendous. Um, and I think they're on the right track. I, I'm with them, though. I think they ought to. It's a national series, meaning st- I don't think they should be going overseas. I think they ought to still be developing their program here and go from go from there. And uh, I think they've done a tremendous job. Love the series and love how competitive it is. Yeah, that's great. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Hopefully we can get back on the show and talk more racing sometime soon. I always enjoy it. Danny Sullivan, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me here today. Danny Sullivan on the Ralph Sheehan Show, presented by Lucas Oil. We'll see you at the races soon.